the bell or not, did they? I always get started, huh? Oh, I saw a few minutes according to my wife. Okay, well, that's fine. We'll get going. Anybody need a handout? I, we're continuing last week's class. If you have last week's handout, we still just picked that up. Anybody need one, though? I've got some extras. A few. You need an extra? While Nick tries to fix the PowerPoint, we'll see what's going on. It was working when I left. Come back and it's all messed up. So I don't know what Nick's doing up there. Same one. Yes, sir. You're welcome. Anybody else back here? I don't see any hands. All right. All right. You take care of them. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. There's the bell. The light from above coming down on me. And no, I'm not a saint. I'm just well, I am a saint, I guess, technically. But reminds me of those pictures, you know, we see the, the shining light, the spotlighting from heaven on somebody. I'm like, no, I'm, I want out of that spotlight. <laughs> All right. I think it's like the devil's target on you, right? If you got a light coming right straight from heaven on you, it's like, whoa. We'll get started this morning. Any uh, comments? I mean, uh, any announcements? Any comments, too, would be good. But Any announcements or prayer requests this morning? I know the Urquharts will be traveling to uh, Texas this week, so please keep them in your prayers. Yes, ma'am. Great. The great-granddaughter Kennedy, right? Doing good. Prayer's been answered. I'm sorry? Great, great granddaughter. All right. Got any more handouts? Or are we out? Are we out? Done? Okay. It's all right. Nope, that's it. I didn't make a whole bunch because I gave them out last week. So, sorry if you don't have a handout. Yes. Okay. Uh, Brother David Godwin will be having a heart cath on Monday. So please, uh, let's keep him in our prayers, most definitely, tomorrow. Anything else? Let's start off class with a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful for another day that we can wake up, that we could enjoy your wonderful creation, and God, that we could assemble amongst our brethren and your family. And God, we're thankful for this time of Bible study that the elders have set aside here at Dalreda so we can gather together as a congregation and, and study your word, open up and see how we can apply it to our lives. And God, we're thankful for that opportunity. We know that there are many around this world that don't have the same opportunity we have. And Lord, may we not take it for granted. And may we enjoy the study that we do here in the book of James as we continue our study on that book. God, we are thankful for the avenue of prayer and being able to come to your throne with our wishes, with our imploring. And, and, and God, we're thankful for the petitions that we're able to give to you. And God, this morning we ask you to be with those that are sick. We ask you to please be with those that are dealing with struggles in their lives, both whether it be physical or spiritual. Lord, please encourage them, strengthen them as only you may. Help them to grow in the maturity of your word and maturity as Christians so that we will attain that perfection 
and that uh, ability that, to have patience in all the circumstances we have. And God, we ask that you especially be with David as he goes for a heart cath tomorrow. Please be with the doctors that attend to him and help them to find out if there's anything physically that we can do and, and help him with while we're here on this earth. And Lord, please uh, be with them in their wisdom that they've studied as they've looked at your wonderful creation of the human body. And, and Lord, help them to, to do what they can to alleviate any problems or, or stress that he's encountering right now. God, we ask you to be with those that have lost loved ones. And we know that there are several uh, about us. And we ask you to especially be with uh, the Hall family as Brother Clyde has lost his brother. And Lord, we ask that you be with the others that are dealing with losses uh, on this earth. And God, please comfort them and give them the peace that passes all understanding that only you can provide. God, we ask you to please be with uh, those that are rejoicing. And Lord, help us to rejoice. And thank you so much for answering our prayers. And thank you so much for encouraging us and being there for us as we go through the struggles in life. And Lord, when we have the small victories in this world, we are thankful for those that give us a little bit of encouragement. We are thankful for Kennedy and her health. And we're so thankful that she has not encountering any kind of problems long-term here from the, the recent uh, bout and, and sickness that she's been dealing with that's being born. And, and God, we ask that you please uh, help be with her as she grows, help her to grow in knowledge and uh, help her to grow in wisdom and understanding of your word. Be with her parents. May they lead Christian lives and may they help raise her as they should. God, we ask you to be with all of us as parents, especially on this Father's Day. Help us to be the, the fathers and the husbands that you need us to be. Help us to stand up tall in the Lord's church and in our families to help make sure that they are led in the path of righteousness. And Lord, help chasten us when we falter and when we fail. Lord, encourage us and lift us up as we strive to do what is best. Thank you most of all for your son. We thank you for the wonderful gift that he gave to us. And God, we're thankful you're our father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We got... uh, almost through two points of the lesson last week. So I want to pick up there this week and go ahead and finish this. This to me is a, a good lesson for us to continue on. I didn't want to shortchange or, or falter in uh, presenting this lesson. So I definitely did not want to rush anything in uh, hopes of uh, not missing some of the points that we have. But we dealt with really, there are four imperatives. If we are to turn trials into triumph, that we read in the book of James, four imperatives that he gives to us. And we, we started out last week with the first two. Of course, the first one is consider or count, depending on what version your, your Bible is. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. There you see in verse 2 of chapter 1 of James, the first imperative, count. Why? Because you want to have an attitude of joyfulness. Uh, that's what we saw there, the first imperative of James. The second imperative is where we ended last week, is know. Know in verse 3 is the, the second imperative. Why do we need to know? Well, because it gives us an understanding mind. And if you want to flip over to James 1, verse 3, you're going to see there the second thing, after counting it all joy or considered all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Uh, some versions say patience. But in many ways, they're very synonymous, as we discussed last week. And we really got to the end of this point when the bell uh, robbed us of the rest of the time, unfortunately. But uh, as you, we, we concluded in talking about the idea of knowledge and the idea of having understanding and wisdom, uh, we dealt with the, uh, the issues that we would have uh, and, and what really it did for us as having knowledge in life. I think PowerPoint is going in and out. So if it's not up there, it's not up there. So I'm not sure what's going on. 
Um, you know, knowledge is important. Faith is always tested, as we talked about last week. And so if we have knowledge of that, we're going to prepare ourselves for that. It's going to be an expectation of our Christian life that we're going to be tested. We're going to go through trials. It's not going to be a surprise to us. We're not going to think, oh, woe is me. I'm the only one that endures or has trials in life. Why? Because we're going to have the knowledge and knowing that everyone's te- uh, tr- faith is tested or tried. Uh, we saw some examples of that, thought about some in the Old Testament. And we looked also the fact that testing works for us, not against us. The idea of us being approved by going through these trials is something that is reiterated time and again in the, in the New Testament. Uh, Peter does a wonderful job in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, idea Paralleling that to the idea of proving uh, a metal such as gold, that we, we go through a purification and, and we are indeed proven... We are approved, so to speak, by going through the trials in life. So that's one way that that testing and going through the trials works for us, not against us. We ended last week on discussing and talking about trials rightly used actually help us to mature. Uh, They don't help us to become less mature. They help us to grow. They help us to have more strength, more assurance in our lives. And so, therefore, uh, we can look and, and have that knowledge and knowing that ultimately God is producing patience. And that patience allows our maturity, spiritually speaking, to to grow and to have a much greater depth to it than we would have had otherwise. Trials help us, uh, and when they are rightly used by us, they help us to mature. God wants us to be patient. It's the key to every other blessing that we are to experience. Uh, When the believer learns to wait on God and on the Lord, then, then he can do great things for him. Uh, you think in the Old Testament, the, the, the situation you had with Abraham. Abraham ran ahead of God, and what did he do? Well, he went and married Hagar instead, right? Because he wasn't being patient. He wasn't enduring. He wasn't waiting on the Lord. And so, therefore, uh, we saw some of the problems that occurred there. Uh, Moses, same situation. He, he ran ahead of God there. He actually murdered a man. He ended up speaking, uh, spending about 40 years trying to learn real true patience and reliance and, and uh, steadfastness on God. Uh, instead of uh, trying to, to live in immaturity as he did in Egypt, uh, he had to learn to be mature and more patient. And even uh, the wonderful apostle Peter, in all of his one, wonderful faithfulness, uh, he still faltered. And in fact, we see his impatience caused him to almost kill a man there in the garden as he struck a man's ear off. Uh, you know, impatience can cause problems. But patience on the flip side and an alternative is something that allows us to grow and allows God to do wonderful and miraculous things in our lives. Things beyond our own control. That's why I call it miraculous. It's not necessarily something that, that we do on this earth, but it's something that God is able to do uh, beyond our own control. He, he sees the, the greater picture. He sees providentially, I believe, a much better path for us. And so you see the, the expectation there of trials being able to be used to help our uh, lives to mature. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 is a verse commonly quoted and looked at with regard to the impact of the, the former writings. But I want to kind of look at that real quickly and just and point out one thing at the end that, that sometimes we don't always think. But uh, there it says whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through... So that through perseverance, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Ultimately, what we see is the perseverance, the patience, the endurance, all these synonymous type words used in the scriptures talking about a mature mindset helps produce that which God hopes for, that what God wants us to strive for in our lives. And that's a mature perspective on life. 
It's a mature application in life. It's looking at things with proper perspective instead of with a jaded view that most of the time worldly glasses might give us in this world. Uh, All too often, and I think if you start doing some self-analysis, you're going to start seeing yourself. uh, When you start beating yourself up or questioning yourself, most of the time you've got your worldly glasses on. uh, And and you start seeing things, maybe why other people may look at you. Or or why why are you concerned about uh, what other people may think? And instead, I'm not not saying you just totally discount that because there's obviously, you know, you look at Matthew and, and... Chapter 5, talking about us being the light of the world and, and us being the seed and, and us scattering the seed and us having, you know, that kind of an impact and a view on things in life. You've you got to have, a, a, I guess, a consideration as to what people perceive you as. But if you're living your life right, your proper perspective is going to be on what God really is looking at. What is God seeing in my life? And that's where the proper patience and perspective allows it to kind of grow and to mature so that we will uh, have a, a life that is more well-rounded in Scripture, not necessarily well-rounded and well-versed in the world. There is no substitute for the understanding mind. And so when you think of these imperatives, first idea of, of counting, considering, uh, that uh, it's an evaluation of when you look at these trials that you're going to actually see them in a different light, but you're going to do that how and why? Well, because of the second imperative. Knowing, because you have an understanding mind, that things aren't necessarily the way the world sees, and things actually have a different view and a different purpose and a different meaning, but knowledge, this knowledge becomes the driving force behind us. And you see why in Romans chapter 15 that it talks about that the scriptures are given to us for a benefit. Why? It helps encourage us. It gives us that foundation. It gives us that steadfastness as we read it and we have this knowledge and this understanding mind. Think about what Hosea said over in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. One of those verses I hope you have underlined in your Bible that, that the lack of knowledge destroys my people. And that's what we face. Well, honestly, that's what we face today in this world. That's what we will face probably in the future. That's what they faced in the past, is the fact that when people have no desire for knowledge, no desire for wisdom in their lives, you face destruction. And I'm not just talking about physical destruction. I'm talking about spiritual destruction. The understanding mind gives you that foundation, that thrust, and that push to be somebody who actually explores and does those things that God wants instead of those things which you want. And ultimately, that understanding mind is going to undergird your acknowledgement, your preservation of the mindset of that these trials, when I actually evaluate them, when I count them, and I have this joyful attitude, I can have the joyful attitude because I have this understanding mind. Now, quickly, I want to look at at the third point here as you look at and see the the third imperative that you see in verse uh, 4, and then you see also down in verses 9 through 11, is the idea of letting. And if you look in in, uh, James chapter 1, the principle there of letting uh, is is emphasized to have a surrendered will. And the, the... the push and the thrust of James's words in verse 4 is the, the thrust to let us try and do something that let, lets self take the back seat. That God becomes the most, prim, the, the most primary consideration, the thing that we have in our lives. So as you see James here in, in verse 4, it says, Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Then look down in verses 9 through 11. And the brother of humble circumstances is, is to glory in his high position. 
And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. The personification here of the rich and the, the, the poor man, I believe, exemplifies what you see earlier in verse 4. And the idea there is that God cannot do anything. He cannot build our character. He cannot grow our maturity spiritually if we don't let him. He can't do anything without us. We're not robots. We're not programmed. We're not something that's built to uh, just automatically follow instructions and directions. Sometimes I think that might be easier for God, but that's not what God desires in our life. What God desires is the self-sacrifice of a loving, dedicated Christian saying, I don't want my will, I want your will, God. And so what you see in the scriptures here, and you see it in, in James chapter 1, you see it in other verses as well, is that you know, resistance to God's will only brings his chastening. It's not that he's going to force us, but he sure is going to discipline us. God disciplines those who he loves, Hebrews says. You see throughout the scriptures, example, I believe, after example of God disciplining his people. The discipline may become a direct form of discipline. We can get into that discussion, I guess. There's also somewhat, I would say, indirect discipline, such as when the Philistines would conquer Israel. Or some other nation would come in and they would fight and they would go against them and they actually would defeat them in some battle or, or, or some, you know, onslaught, so to speak. And God would say that he allowed those nations to rise up. Nations fall, nations rise. God's always in control is what the scriptures say. So the idea here is resistance, in some respects, is futile, I guess. God's going to have his way. God's will will occur. Now the question is, are we going to get on board with it? I, I like to look at Moses as being a kind of an example of this. I mean, how many times did Moses try to give God a, an excuse in, in Exodus before he finally went to Egypt and went to Pharaoh? I mean, time and time again. God, I, I'm not the man. Uh, God, I, I can't speak. God, I'm fearful. I can't do this, God, by myself. And ultimately, time and time again, God chastened him. He encouraged him. He disciplined him. He, he really kind of painted Moses into the corner where Moses had no choice but to just give in. And you, you, you think as you read the account of Exodus that sometimes Moses is this man who, who goes with this incredible strength and, and assurance. But there's a part of me that, that reads those passages and realizes that Moses is there and he really has no choice in the matter. Uh, my daughter uh, watched recently Prince of Egypt, which is a cartoon uh, movie. And uh, I actually sat and watched it with her, and I was, I was very interested in the way that it perceived and, per, and showed uh, Moses. It kind of presented him as being uh, someone who is obedient. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not that he's not obedient. He is obedient. But in his obedience, it, it is somewhat obedience in, in the face of realizing he doesn't necessarily 100% want to do what he's doing. You know, it, it presented the idea that when the firstborn were all killed in the land of Egypt, his own nephew was killed. It was very interesting to think about because it was. The prince of Egypt, he was a prince. His, his brother was more than likely the pharaoh at the time when he went back, depending on what historical account you want to look at. But, and the idea that his own nephew was killed as one of the firstborn there in the nation. And, and, and the humility that he's portrayed there is very kind of interesting to me. 
But the point of it all is that in the end, regardless of what we desire, regardless of what we want to do, ultimately, if we are obedient and if we follow what God wants and if we do what his will is, we are going to surrender ourselves to that. If we submit, he's going to be able to accomplish his work. He, he also you know, wants a, a good work. He doesn't want us to give a half-hearted effort. He wants us to do what he, he, he says to do. We don't get to pick and choose which commandment we obey. God wants us to be in, all in, whenever we decide that we are going to obey him. And that's where you get into this whole idea of letting, letting. When James says, you know, let endurance have its perfect result. Now, what does that mean? That means that we actually take a step back and realize we are not in control of our lives. And in fact, instead of us being in control, it's God that's in control. It's his will that is to be done, not ours. You know, exemplary, some of the wording I'm using may kind of make your mind go back to that Garden of Gethsemane. When, when Jesus is there in the garden, he's, he's prostrate on the ground asking God to take this cup from him. But instead, what does he say? Not my will, but what? Yours be done. Or thine be done, as the King James says. You know, how crazy is that? How hard is that? How difficult is that for us to understand? God, who came in the flesh in the form of Christ, decided in his mind that I am going to be submissive to the ultimate will of God and I will give myself up as a sacrifice. Now, I think we just kind of browse over that and just kind of blink over it as we read those scriptures and those passages. But parallel to your own life, if you're told something to do, how often do we try to buck it? How often do we try to say, well, you know, maybe if I just go this far, if I just do this little bit, then I'm going to take care of things. I'm not going to be all in. I mean, Jesus was all in. He was all in to the point of death on the cross, right? I mean, Philippians 2 gives us that idea of the the mentality of Christ and the fact that he was a servant and up until death, he was submissive to God. Now, how many of us would be all in to that point? That's the challenge that we have. And when James says, let, thy, let, let God's will be done, let endurance have its perfect effect to you, he's saying, hey, give it up. It's not you. It's God that's in control. And in fact, his will should be done. You've got to take a back seat. Now, Christians in the, new, in the first century had a hard time with that, evidently. And I would venture to guess that most Christians, if not all, struggle with that same thing in the 21st century. It is difficult for us to say we're all in with God. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. It's not an easy path. And that's what James emphasizes here is you've got to let those trials, let that result have its effect on your life. Let it change your perspective. Let it it change the way that you react. Let it just make you a different person. You know, and the phrase that, that Paul talked about in Galatians 2.20 is that he's been sacrificed, you know, crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he lives. It's Christ that lives in him. That gives that a whole new meaning if you really think about it because you're saying my life is gone. It's Christ that I'm living now. And how many of us actually do that? George.
Well, and I agree that the idea of perspective is huge in this. Uh, and it kind of echoes what the first point was, is the idea of counting it all joy. Well, how do you count? It's your perspective on things. Instead of seeing your weaknesses, instead of saying, okay, well, I can't get up and speak and teach a Bible class. You know, so I can't do that. Think about what you can do instead. You know, what are some things that you can step in and do? Where are some areas that you are able to assist? Maybe you can't get up and speak publicly, and that's fine. It's not for everybody. Trust me, it's for the birds most days. Uh, but the, the, the point is we cannot give excuses, you know, because we often really have a warped perspective. It's, it's trying, like you say, it's, it's looking at our inability instead of looking at our ability. It's the idea of when we count uh, the joys, how are we counting it? What kind of perspective is it? Is it an earthly perspective or is it a spiritual perspective? You know, are we more concerned about the worldly impact or the view that they're going to have of us if we fail instead of the spiritual impact that we could have? You know, it's not easy to get up and teach a Bible class, but you know what? You could get up and try because more than likely you're going to be able to have the the, the materials and the ability to at least kind of get out there and get the discussion rolling. You know, but instead we look at the negative, don't we? And we think about, oh, we can't do that. Well, think about other things. Uh, you know, just talking about teaching Bible class. What are some other things that we can do in this world? You know, we can do a lot of different things to make a difference in this world for the Lord's church. Uh, we're all commanded to go out and to go and to teach. Well, how do we do that? Well, each of us can do it in different ways. But that doesn't absolve us of that responsibility. So we've got to be cautious, I think, about the viewpoint uh, and, and what we see. And, and the point is we can't let that warped viewpoint take away the submissiveness that we've got to have to God. And that's what this point here, this third imperative that James tells us, let us have a surrendered will to God. Uh, and in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, real quickly, Paul outlines three different works uh, that are involved in, a, um, involved in a complete Christian life. God does work uh, for us. You see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the works that, that, that God does for us are going to be salvation. That's what he does for us in our lives. Uh, God does work in us, secondly. And there you see in verse 10 the idea that, that God is working in us. That's the sanctification that God helps produce to us. Once we have uh, become uh, saved, we have become a believer, there should be a sanctification that occurs as well there as Christians uh, mold themselves to God's will. They do the things uh, that God wants them to do. And I think that's what is kind of imperative there, that God builds our character uh, and wants us to become more like Jesus. We are sanctified, we are called out, we are purified, uh, we become different. Why? Because we have experienced that work that God has done in us and then does for us. Uh, being the salvation and the work that does in us is, salva- is uh, sanctification. And then God does work through us ultimately. Or at least he should. If he's not, then you've got some problems. And that's what you're going to see is the idea of service, Christian service that God does through us. And we become God's hands and his feet as we spread the word of God. We become his mouthpiece, so to speak, to the world as we teach and preach through the foolishness of preaching sometimes. You know, people want to change things. Well, you know, things are done in certain ways and for certain reasons. God wants us to be his mouthpiece. We're not as performers, but we're actually those that are actually going out and teaching the, the truth to others. Uh, we are going out and doing the service to others. Our service is done because God created in Christ Jesus. Uh, he created us uh, in Christ Jesus unto good works. And so we've got to see that uh, in, imperative and that important part of God allowing or us allowing God to do work through us. Now, what's got to be point, I think, made here is that he must work in us before he can work through us. 
So our question is, is are we allowing God, first of all, to work in us? Are we allowing us to be sanctified every day? Are we allowing God to do his work inside of us? Or are we pushing back, so to speak? Are we kicking the goad? Are we, you know, are we, what are we doing to prohibit that? Because if we're prohibiting that, then we're going to prohibit the service and the good works that we should be doing through him and through Christ Jesus because of the reason why we're, we are created. Uh, part of letting God's will take control is allowing God to work through us. And if God is not working uh, in us with, uh, with, with our consent, then we've got some, some pretty big issues. Think about some of those examples, again, Old Testament examples of, of those who kind of uh, took a little bit of time for work to be done and for them to actually finally come around. You, you see Abraham, it took about 25 years for God to finally get it through him and allow him to uh, see the promise, the fulfillment of his promise, right, that he was going to have a child. Uh, it took about 25 years for that to occur. Uh, God was continuing to work on Abraham, work on his uh, patience and his endurance and his ability to let go and let God, as sometimes you hear in the, the world today. And Abraham had a problem with that. As we've already mentioned, he ran off and, and married Hagar and had a child for her. Why? Because he was impatient. He wasn't willing to wait around for God's promise. And so he wanted to take matters in his own hand. Think about Joseph. You know, it was about 13 years or so, I believe, when he was held, right? Uh, he was un, unjustly charged. He was, uh, you know, accused of certain things that he was not involved in. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And it, it took several years for God to be able to work through Joseph to allow those things to occur. But Joseph allowed him to do so. And in the end, what we see is the result there of God working through that situation and those circumstances, allowing those trials to increase Joseph's patience and his endurance, and ultimately to bring about that righteous attitude that we read about there in, in the book of uh, Genesis there as it closes out of, of Joseph's mindset in this world. That was brought about by him allowing God to work through the situations and trials in his life. Uh, the idea of letting God take control of us is reiterated through the scriptures. We've already talked about Moses. Think about the apostles. It took three years of intense training by the Lord himself to get these apostles almost to the point where they were willing to go out and die for him. Because you think at the cross, what happened? They all scattered, right? I mean, even at that point in time, you know, they were not getting the full thrust and the full impact of God working in and through them. And so ultimately what we see is, is how it grew and how it was able to be matured. And again, when they finally let go and let God take control of the situation, what you see is that they were willing to stick their necks literally and, and figuratively out there for Christ. You saw them going out on the road and teaching and preaching in the midst of all the persecution and all the problems and the tr troubles that they even encountered. If you go and read some of the, the Book of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs and others that, that kind of account some of the historical kind of passed down stories of, of the apostles when they went through and, and what they experienced after Christ left this earth. And, and what you see is that they literally gave themselves up for the cause of Christ. And what you see in the end is that God's work that is done in us and through us can bring about this maturity if we let go, if we let the things that occur to us take their proper course and we have that surrendered will to God. God cannot work in us without our consent. There must be a surrendered will. The mature Christian ultimately does not argue with God. In fact, there's a, a mentality there like you see over in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6. If you want to flip there, maybe something you want to underscore there of, of the importance of giving up and, and kind of letting God be the one in control. In verse 6, it says um, there, of course, 
Very interestingly, the first part of six is children obey your fathers uh, or your parents. Honor your father and mother. It keeps going down there. Uh, you know, being, talks about the, the servant mentality of, of servants to be uh, responsible and being submissive to their masters. Uh, and it says in verse 6, not by ways of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves to Christ, doing the will of God, what? From the heart. And so the point of that, of that scripture goes to say that God doesn't just want yes men. God doesn't want robots following him. He's not going to uh, expect us to be hardwired to some upgrade that, that ultimately we're just going to follow him because we've been told to. Uh, we want to follow him. It is a giving up of ourself because we want to give up ourselves to him. And that's ultimately the mature mindset there uh, where we don't argue with God's will. Why? Because we follow it willingly, lovingly. We follow it with the mindset that his will is what we want, not just what we're going to follow and do. You know, you see different characters that kind of um, kick back at this. And we talked about it a, a little bit, but Jonah is probably the best one talking about not giving up and not giving in to God's will. And we know what ultimately happened with Jonah. But his immaturity is even seen there at the end of the, end of the book. He's sitting wallowing in, in, in his despair because he wanted Nineveh destroyed. And if you ever read that book, I find it interesting that we kind of exalt Jonah up on this pedestal as being, uh, you know, these stories and talk about that he, uh, you know, went in the big fish. That's the big story that most of the kids learn. And, and ultimately he was spit out on land and then he went and preached to Nineveh like God said. He really didn't want to. In fact, it was never his will conforming with God's will. He did it just merely out of obedient works. And in the end, I think you see the mindset of Jonah where he still lives in a little bit of immaturity there at the end of the book because there he's under that juniper tree and, um, and, and God kind of tells him, you know, Jonah, this isn't about you. It's not about you. And you've got to give up what you want and what you desire because this is what I want. This is what I need. And you need to be kind of conforming yourself to me. I'm looking forward to Wednesday night. Uh, Scott's going to be speaking in our summer series on Wednesday night. And his verse is not to be conformed. Be not conformed to this world. Romans chapter 1 verse 2. Uh, that's going to be, I mean, Romans 12 verse 2. That, that kind of concept there of not being conformed to the world. And in fact, that's it's the flip side of what we as mature Christians have got to learn to be. And that's being conformed to God's will. And that's a difficult, difficult thing to do. But in order for us to follow the imperatives of James and to be able to turn the trials and lives and the triumphs, you've got to be able to let go of what you want and what you think might be good and to go for those things which God wants. And it's not just going for them because God says, I want these, but you're going for them because your will has truly been conformed and changed into following him after a loving you know, mindset and a subservient type of, of uh, submissiveness that you've got to him because you realize who he is and you love him for who he is. God's testing has a way of leveling us. You see in the verses 9 through 11, the, the context there of, of uh, material wealth, it levels us. James emphasizes it's not our material wealth that exalts us, uh, it takes us through the testings of life. It's the spiritual resources. And that's how the, the poor man can exalt and can exult in his lowliness. That's how the, the rich man can still do the same thing when he experiences loss. Why? Because their focus remains not on their will, but on the will of God. And so you see the material wealth. You see those things which fade away, as verse 11 says, not being so important. 
And so the rich man can glory in his humiliation and the poor man can glory in his circumstances and in his position. Uh, Why? Because their will has succumbed to God's will. James says in order for us to let trials take their due course and to be that influencing factor in us, we've got to have this surrendered will, this mindset that we let go and let God's will take control of us. Any comments on the third point before I move to the fourth one real quickly? The fourth imperative that you see in this passage of Scripture deals with uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And that point and principle there is asking. Asking. The, the imperative there is, okay, first you got the, the consider or count it, right? Second is knowing. Know. James tells us we got to know. Thirdly, James tells us that we've got to... Um, I just said a let. Got to let. Sorry. And fourthly, finally, this one is we've got to ask. We've got to ask. And I kind of looked at these points and I thought, well, how do these imperatives really kind of uh, fit into the, the idea and concept of, of our lives? You see, really the first two imperatives there kind of deal with the, the concept of, of uh, succumbing and, and giving in to authority, so to speak. And uh, the third one, uh, letting God uh, take control, is an acknowledgement uh, here, this one really becomes the active part or the active imperative uh, of our lives. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? It's not just a, an idea of us having a direction and a mindset and an imperative to obey and honor God, let God take control of things. But what are we supposed to do? Well, what James tells us in verses 5 through 8 is to ask in faith. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith. Without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the sea, uh, the surf of the sea, uh, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all of his ways. So the idea there is when we find ourselves without that knowledge, what do we do? When we find ourselves sometimes struggling with surrendering our will, what do we do? Well, what we do is we ask God for help. It is a very active imperative here of of a Christian being able to stand up and say, God, I need your help. It is an acknowledgement that his will is still supreme over ours. And then it is a recognition by ourselves that we need somebody else, much greater than ourselves, to make our lives fit that form and fit that mold that God desires in our lives. We do it because we love him. We do it because we respect him. We do it because we acknowledge his supremacy over us. But still, it's something that we do and we ask God to do these things. Christians, evidently, when James was dealing with these Christians here, had some, had some difficulties with praying. Uh, there were some prayer issues, I believe, there in the Christians that, that James spoke to that were scattered abroad and dispersed uh, from Jerusalem. You see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, that there were some, some issues with prayers and praying there among the people. I don't want to get into those because we'll get them in later lessons, but But obviously there's some things there. He starts off here in James chapter 1 hitting the issue head on that when you have an issue in your life, when you are confronting trials, you cannot become a victor in those trials unless you ask God to be with you. Unless you ask God to to give you that wisdom, that understanding, that ability to really view those trials for what they are or what they are not in your lives. You know, Christians had problems with praying. But when we go through trials... 
You know, we've got to pray. Well, what, what do we pray for? Well, thankfully, James tells us what to pray for. It's not just the idea that we've got to pray. Some people think, well, I've got an active prayer life, and I'm always going to God and telling Him all my problems. And I'm always going to Him and, and even thanking Him for the things that He's given us in life. I think my children, you know, kind of say the same prayer over and over again as I'm trying to teach them to pray. I mean, they're only six and three, so, you know, we've got a long way to go still on the training aspect. Just getting them to say a prayer is pretty good. But it's funny, they always say the same thing. They're always thanking God for their family, and they're going around the room and saying, you know, thank you for Mommy, thank you for Daddy, and thank you for my little sister Tinley, or thank you for my big sister Marley, depending on which one's praying. Sometimes they even add on there who's always funny, you know, because they, they, they are thankful, I guess, that they get humored. Uh, they're thanking God for their, their grandparents. They're thanking God for the things they have in their lives. You know, they're immature prayers, to be honest with you. There's nothing wrong with thankfulness. Don't get me wrong. We need to express our thankfulness to God. We even need to ask God for things. And sometimes you find, I find my children asking God for things. God, please help us to have a good night's rest. God, thank, help us to have a good day tomorrow. Uh, Marley's prayed about her tooth. Uh, by the way, y'all ask her to grin for you. She lost a tooth last night. Uh, you know, there are some things that we, obviously we petition God for in prayers, and there's nothing wrong with it. That's what God says to do, Philippians, right? He, he says, cast all, you know, to, to pray and to, to lean on God for us. Uh, Peter tells us to uh, cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. There's nothing wrong with asking for things. But when it gets down to it, what do mature Christians ask for? Well, James answers that question here because when we deal with trials and tribulations, we're not just asking to get out of them. We're not. We're asking for wisdom. Well, what does that mean? When we ask for wisdom, it's not just saying, okay, we want to be wise to know that we're in trials. That, that, that makes no sense. Wisdom is, is in, the set, in essence, the, the application of knowledge. Uh, I was reading uh, one, is the knowledge, uh, knowledge is kind of compared to someone taking apart something. No, wisdom is being able to put it back together again. You know, it's a little bit different. It's the application of that knowledge that you may gain on taking something apart. I took apart a radio yesterday trying to fix it my father-in-law. You know, it's one of those things where you're going through and thinking of what screw went to what thing and how it's connected and you've got to flip this thing over to look at this. And you got to, you got to, in your mind, you have the knowledge. Oh, you should, hopefully, if you take something apart, unless you don't care about putting it back together. As you're going through it, you're thinking, okay, I've got to remember this goes here and I've got to remember this goes here and I've got to remember this goes here. The wisdom aspect is being able to put the thing back together when you've got it in parts on your desk. And that's not always the easy thing to do. In our lives, sometimes the knowledge of knowing we're in a trial is not that difficult to understand. You know when you experience trials, most of the time. Sometimes the trial may be going on behind the scenes. You may not realize it until down the road. And you're like, man, I wish I knew I was getting myself in this scrape. But most of the time, you know when you're in a trial. The question is, do you have the wisdom to get out of it what you need to get out of it? That's what wisdom is. It's not just knowing you're in a scrape. It's knowing how to get out of it. Knowing what to get out of it. Knowing how to apply it to your lives. You know, if you're struggling with, with an issue or a problem in your life, if your family's dealing with healthness, healthiness or, or sickness or, or maybe even loss of a loved one, what do I get out of this? What can I apply to my lives out of this? Because that's what God wants us to seek and search after. 
If we've got the proper perspective, if we truly counted it as a joy, we got this joyful attitude, and then we go into the idea of having the understanding that our, our faith will be tried and will be tested, and if we go through and we, our, our will is surrendered to God, then ultimately the logical result is going to be that our believing heart that comes about because we have this asking mentality, we have this imperative in our lives that we are truly asking God, we're going to figure out what this is going to get and impact our lives in? How can we become better? How can we become stronger? How can we do more for God in the midst of our trials and tribulations? That's where this gets into. When you try your faith and you go through those trials in your lives and you fall on your knees and pray or you fall on your face and you pray at night, the prayers aren't just, God, help me get through this. It should be for mature Christians. God, help me get out of this what I need to get out of this in my life. Help me be stronger. Help me be more faithful. Help me be more dedicated in life. And it's not always easy. But if we allow our maturity to grow, if we allow those things to, to go much further than we would have on the, the flip side, life's going to be so much better. Comment. Well, that's a good question. She, she uh, brought up the idea of wrapping her mind around those who are born with infirmities, maybe uh, lack of intelligence or ability to grow, mentally speaking. And, and how does that affect them? Does that mean that in the end they're going to be able to grow or not grow? Probably going to depend on the circumstance to be my answer to that. I hate that's a, a very equivocal answer, but it's going to depend on those things. Um, I will say a lot of times even those that are born that way can be a lesson for others. It may not be something that they're going to be able to grasp themselves. You know, you may have some, and I've, I've had some that, that I've known in my lives that were born with severe Down syndrome. And, you know, it's one of those things where they may not ever be able to attain that mentality. Some do, some don't. Uh, you know, you've got other situations and circumstances where children are born with, I think, things that, that are beyond their control, and then it also inhibits their ability to develop. I'll leave it to God as to what he says. I think sometimes there's arguments made that they're safe. They're safe when it comes to salvation issues, if that's what you're asking. Uh, but that'll be God's call and not mine. But what the, the good point of it is, is that if we are mature Christians, and if we're trying to strive for that maturity, those situations and circumstances will allow us to grow ourselves. Maybe not them, but will allow us to grow. And our faith can be enhanced. It can grow. It can mature. It can become deepened. Uh, because of experiencing and dealing with those who may be less fortunate than we are ourselves. They may never fully appreciate they're even less fortunate, to be honest with you. They may not know the difference. But in our eyes, as we look at them, we're going to be looking at them so much differently. And I think that's a good example of how you change your mindset and your viewpoint on the circumstances that surround you. you know, a lot of times we'll look at those situations and we'll have sympathy and pity, you know, but we also have this love and this care and this outreach for those families or for those individuals that experience these 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 trials in their lives. Um, but it's something that can make us grow deeper. And if we have true wisdom, ultimately, our belief and, and the believing heart that we've got is going to allow us to, to grow and mature with that. It's not just asking for something, by the way. It's asking uh, with, how do we ask? How do we pray? 
And he answers that question in verses 6 through 8. He says that we are to pray with faith. I want you to look at that scripture real quickly because what it says there, if you're not faithful, and I believe this kind of echoes what we talked about, about having an understanding mind, but if, if you're not faithful when you ask God for wisdom, then you might as well not ask at all. Why? Because you're much like the surf of the sea, tossed to and fro. If you've ever been to the beach and gotten out in the water, you know, I've been out there before and I've turned my back on the waves, <laughs> you know, to look back on the shore and all of a sudden, boom, I'm smacked down, you know, um, thrown under the water. That's what happens sometimes with Christians if you're not watching where you're going and, and realizing what your faith is. If you're not faithful, you're going to be tossed around. You're going to be, uh, you know, scattered. You're going to be uh, the, like the surf of the sea and it will cause havoc in your life. Uh, and ultimately, I believe it's, it's an evidence of immaturity for you as well. Real quickly, I want you to look uh, at the application and the um, past the conclusion on the handouts if you got one, but really the reflection and the application there. Uh, you read the reflection yourself. I believe there's four questions that I want you to ask yourselves as you go through this week. Uh, remember the four imperatives and ask yourselves these questions. Am I evaluating my system or my circumstance and situation as God would? Am I responding out of true understanding of what God's word says about going through trials? Am I surrendering my own desires to God's desires? And finally, fourth, am I acting like I really believe in God? And you ask yourself those questions, I believe it will challenge you as you go through trials in life. Small, big, medium, large, it doesn't matter what it is. But as you go through the trials in life, it will encourage you to use those trials to grow your faith instead of hinder your faith. To grow your lives and become a more mature Christian instead of dealing it like an immature Christian would. Look at the application there. I encourage you to kind of think about that this week. Please study next, te- uh, next week's test, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. We will pick up there next week. And please continue to read uh, the book as we go through this study together. Thank you all so much for your attention.